Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with Marcus Kauke. Today, my very good friend and colleague, Antonio Garrido, is here. Antonio is the author of one of my favorite books on sales, Asking Questions the Sandler Way. Antonio, could you give a brief introduction to you, how you got to where you are, and your journey into writing the book? First of all, hello, Marcus. Thank you very much for the introduction. I'm a very, very big fan. Thank you for the invitation, Mother. I have been in sales, marketing, leadership for longer than I care to remember, probably um, 30 years now, yeah. I was a Sandler client. I was one of those chaps that was originally a client of ours. My coach, my trainer was a chap called Tom Neeson. I don't know if you've had him on your podcast yet, if you haven't. And so I was a client. I was a client for a number of years. Completely blew my mind to the extent that I decided to... Uh, just to a tiny extent, by the company. So I moved to Miami five years ago with yeah. my wife and family. Huh? What's that? Victor Kayam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't Phillips. It was Sandler. So we've been here for five years. About three years ago, I started writing the book. It's been incredibly well received, not least because of the great support from people like yourself. It's quickly rising up the ranks of our bestseller list. And it's been a great journey. And I have another one coming soon, but we'll talk about that maybe in another six months or so. Excellent. Okay. I look, I look forward to plugging that as well. Talk to me about your Sandler journey. You've obviously come through as a client. What's mm-hmm. your experience been where you move from traditional selling into Sandler? The reason I became a client when I was offered a job, an American company based in Dallas, And the CEO, who was a rather enlightened fellow, said to me, the job that he offered me was running Europe, the Middle East, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and the Pacific Rim, like a third of the world, right? And he said, first thing I need to do is go and get trained. And I said, no, that's okay. Don't need that. You know, I've been on every (laughs) training course that there is in the world, right? So you don't have to bother with that. You know, where can I start? And he said, no, no, you don't understand. Everybody gets trained in my place, in our place, with this thing called Sandler training. And I said, no, you don't understand. I don't need it. And then he said, no, you don't understand. You either do it or you don't get the job. I said, okay, let's go and check it out. So put me on a plane and flew me to Dallas, which is obviously where Tom hangs out, as you know. And I was the most cynical student, right, on the flight home. <laughs> I was real hostage. I met Tom on the morning of day one. By lunchtime day one, I was a raving lunatic convert, right? And so, and really was grumpy with myself for having lived my whole sales career and not known about Sandler. We were like the world's best kept secret. And I was like grumpy for not having found us or you or them earlier. So I was lucky because I had a rock star trainer. I had Tom Neeson. Second best trainer in the world. The second best. I then spent probably the next three years helping Sandler into the Middle East, Africa, and the Pacific Rim, and and kind of almost became a pseudo trainer whilst ever I was a client at the same time. So it was an interesting experience, and it's one that I love to tell because whenever I'm doing a training session, as you do, Marcus, there are often a small percentage of hostages in the audience. And I often start a training session saying, hey, listen, before we start, let me tell you how I came to this. And if you are at all dubious, if your BS meter is already in the red, right, that's okay. 
let's see where it is by the end of lunch day one and by the end of close day one and lunch day two. And in the 14 years since I've been associated with Sandler, I have yet to have anybody leave two or three day boot camp not being a screaming convert. So tell me this, how much money do you reckon you left on the table because of adopting the traditional approach? I'm genuinely going to say billions with a B, not with an M. And that sounds rather grand. Why? Because I've been selling for a long time, high value, some, some very high value, very complex products and solutions in my early days. And if you lose a client for whatever reason, a client can stay with you for 20 years. So I probably lost millions in terms of individual sales, but billions over the I'm old, right? So billions over the years. And it's such a shame. It's such a shame because it didn't need to have, have happened or been that way. And the sales that I was training my teams, I, I, you know, I run teams that, if there are any Americans listening, would call Fortune 60 companies. And if there are British people, top 60 PLCs with thousands of sales guys. And I ran teams and we had sales training courses that we had our guys running around doing bizarre things. I now know that they were bizarre things. And at the time, they seemed, they seemed entirely credible and reasonable. But now I just know one of the reasons for writing the book, one of the key reasons for writing the book is when I learned that we have to stop selling features, function, benefit, and we have to start, we have to have, start having a different conversation. And I was struggling with how to not have that conversation, or in other words, how to have a different conversation. And it occurred to me, well, it occurred to me because I'm a bit slow, right? That questioning was the key to that. And so the book was probably germinating for about 10 years before I started to write it. When I started it, it came out very, 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 very quickly because I had so much to say. And you probably hear that now. <laughs> The first 17 years of my career, when I first came across Sandler, I did a quick back-of-the-napkin analysis of the deal right. member. And there was at least £56 million pounds yeah. I could have, would have, should have won. And that doesn't take into account lifetime customer value. So that exactly. would have been half a billion quid. Obviously, I was never quite as grandiose as yourself. Um, <laughs> but since then, what's really struck me is that the clients that I've worked with have generated upwards of six and a half billion pounds worth of sales. Yeah, right. And it's largely by stopping them doing stupid things. Like, oh. <laughs> yes. Well, so, Sandler, I don't, I don't know what the rule, there is a rule, but I can't remember what the number is. But basically, he said, if, you're, if your foot hurts, it's probably because you're standing on your own toe. That's exactly. If your lips are moving, you're probably losing. The key thing that I'd really like to discuss now is uh, questioning. In terms of traditional questioning, I was always taught, don't ask why questions because they frighten people. Ask open questions and uh -huh. never ask closed questions. Frankly, it's shit advice. Tell me, in your experience of having worked with these extremely large sales teams, what was the uh -huh. impact of that kind of traditional erroneous belief? Well, before we were then all became Sandler converts, the impact was huge. Not only did we lose a lot of business, the business that we gained, we negotiated for the wrong reasons, and then we had to make it all about price because we couldn't make it about any, anything else. Can I just and, and, what you mean yeah. negotiate? You mean concede and give away unilateral concession? 
That's exactly what I mean. I mean, because selling is getting our products and services, our price and our terms and conditions. And anything that isn't that is negotiating, right? I always position it that you have salesmanship, yeah. then have order taking, and the shit right. with your shoe is negotiating. Yeah. It's the last resort of people who can't take an order. So therefore, we dropped price. Our sales cycles were too long. Turnover or challenges with staff because we were asking them to do stuff that was just beating them up and, and, and it was just awful in every regard. That raises an interesting point. The point that you make is where does sales start? And some people say sales starts at hello. And I think the sales starts at no. Until the other guy says no, just as you've said, or you're doing his order taking, right? So if sales doesn't start at hello, it starts at no. And then once you get the no, that's when you go to work, right? So I'm with you. And a negotiation is a failure as far as I'm concerned. Talk to me about selling past the no. This is something that people come to me a lot for. And they say, you know, we're not closing enough. And my question to them is, well, of the ones who say no to you, what proportion of them end up buying something from someone? All of them buy something from someone. It hasn't been new. And at Sandler, we say go for the no. And what we actually mean is, Get to that as quickly, as genuinely as quickly as possible, because then you can start to work. Because until you get to that, until you get to that, you are just sort of taking. But before I answer that question, and I'm not being cute with the reversing, right? I just I want to ask you a different question, right? And whoever is now listening to this podcast, take a second and think about this question for yourself in your own world, right? So the question is this. And I'd be interested in your view as well, Marcus. I think I can already imagine what your answer is going to be. But So the question is, imagine we're talking to a prospect, right? So let's pretend we're talking to a prospect. So I'm going to ask you, what percentage of the time do you think that prospect, on average, so just think of an average prospect, what percentage of the time do they tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? What do you think? Never, never, never. <laughs> right. Moving, they're probably not. Right. So, so there'll be some people listening that it maybe went 10%, so maybe a few words, a few sets themselves, 20%, 25%. Well, let's agree it's not, it's never 100, and it's probably mostly zero. And <laughs> it's somewhere between that, right? So, here is our first problem. As you said, if their lips are moving, we've got a problem. If they're not telling us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth 100% of the time, that's our first problem. Our first problem is they don't tell us the truth 100% of the time. So, Problem one. It's also true that what they do tell us, I'm going to be trying to be slightly political in the way I position this. What they do tell us is what they believe is in their best interest to have us believe. Is that fair? So they'll tell us a version of the truth that they think it's in their best interest for us to believe. So are they lying to us? Well, yeah, right. They're misleading us on some level in lots of different ways. So our job, therefore, this is before we've even started. This is before we've walked in, right? In terms of our pre-call planning, in terms of our strategic and tactical questioning, in terms of how we're setting ourselves up to have this conversation with this prospect, is we've got to believe that our primary objective is to get to the truth. And if we can get to the truth, it just makes everybody's life easier. Well, so how do you get to the truth? And in the book, we say, well, you've got a couple of options. One, you can take yourself hither to a cave high in a hill, and you can wear a horse hair shirt, and you can try and fast on, and, and eat bread and water for 40 days and try to connect to the psychic ether and hope that you can divine the truth by burning some chicken feathers and 
figuring out where the smoke's going to go. You can do that. That's option one. Call Mystic Meg, right? Or option two, you can ask some really, really good question. And of the two, it seems that asking good questions seems to be the smarter, quicker, easier, faster way of doing it. If you want to get better answers, ask better questions. A hundred percent. I mean, it's as simple as that. It is. But here's the challenge. None of us, none of us are programmed to ask good questions. What we are all programmed to do, by dint of, of evolution, right? So it's stamped on our DNA not to ask questions. I'll explain why in a minute. So there's, there's some kind of genetic DNA evolution issue standing against us. And then there's socialization issues standing against us. So we're socialized not to ask uh, questions. I often play a game when I'm, when I'm training my people and I say, finish off these sentences. So all of us received scripting when we were six, seven, or eight years old. And I have a, a coach that basically says that all adults are just kids in big pants, right? So we all have this scripting going on. And finish off these sentences from messages that, that you probably heard when you were six, seven, or eight years old. So a sentence that might start with, good boys and girls should be seen and not heard. Uh, only speak when spoken to. Don't ask so many questions. When we picked up this programming, it now stands against us. And then what happened was we then went to the school. And when the teacher stood at the front, front of the class and said, what's the capital of, of France? And we threw our hands in the air and said Paris, and then got an A on our report card and went home with A's on our report card, what happened to us? We were rewarded. Our parents and those that adults around us and those that loved us and cared for us rewarded us for knowing stuff. Right, And then when we're squished through the school system, which basically says, know this, know this, know this. You don't need to know why, but you need to know these things, and so you can answer that multiple-choice question. You don't need to know why so much. And in fact, if Robin Williams, God bless him, the late Robin Williams, had a a tremendous stand-up sketch that he did about his son, when his son asked him why the sky was blue, and he said, well, it's because the light diffracts out of water molecules. Why does it do that? Well, because this is how we breathe and we need water. Well, why do we need water? We were all that child. So why, 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 why? What happened when we said why about eight times? What, what did our parents do? Because. Because I said so, just because, and that's just, just shut up. Don't ask so many questions, right? So we got rewarded for knowing stuff, and we actually got, we actually got punished for asking why do we There's a lot standing against us for asking questions. We also believe that if somebody else is in charge, in other words, if we don't have equal business stature, if we believe that the prospect is in a position of authority over us, all of our scripting comes out and they ask us a question and we answer it. We we are programmed to answer it. And whilst ever we believe we don't have equal business stature and they are in position of authority over us, it makes asking questions very difficult. There's a lot of beliefs going on. There's a lot of attitude that comes behind asking good questions. Now, let me ask you another question. Imagine you've got an hour with a prospect. If you've got an hour with a prospect, how many questions do you think you could ask in an hour? Now, you could ask a million, billion, short, quick-fire, dumb question, but if you're having a really good conversation with a prospect, we want them to be talking 70% of the time, which means that we've got to be talking 30% of the time. So we've got to ask a question, they've got to answer it. How many questions typically do you think 15, you can ask? 18. Right. 
So our questioning real estate is very limited. We don't have a hundred questions to ask. We only have a limited number of questions to ask. It therefore stands to reason, I believe, that if we've only got 10 questions to ask, we should be asking 10 phenomenal questions, not average and crappy questions. Fair? Absolutely. I mean, it's really important that your questions deliver insight. They're challenging. They're demanding. This is where I think a lot of people go wrong. So Exactly. When I do my pre-call plan, and I do my pre-call plan, I have my pre-call plan, and I on my pre-call plan, I will write, depending on how much time I've got, what's going on, whether it's first meeting, second meeting, or third meeting, for example. I will write that I want, I actually want to hear the prospect say, oh my God, that's, that's a great, I have no idea. When I can get that guy to think, when I can get him to think, or her, right? When I can get them to think, or them to say, holy moly, that is, that, I, that's a great question. When I can get them to say that, then I know I'm corrected. No one's ever asked me that question. Before. I've never seen, I've never thought of that before. Perfect. That's absolutely the goal. Right. And here's why. So, whoever's listening, and I don't want this to turn into a lecture, but write this down. Here's the golden rule. The golden rule is different is better than better. Different is better than better. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you look, smell, feel, sound, taste like your competitors, how are you going to be treated? Like your competitors. You'll be treated like a commodity provider. Right. That's so if you, the bottom of their shoe. Exactly. So if you are exactly like your competitor, then you will be treated like your competitor. And the only point of differential between you can be price. And that's not good for anybody, right? So how do you differentiate yourself? Go ahead, Marcus. This is really interesting because one of the things that I find having trained with Sandler for, what, 15, 16 years now is that you do definitely differentiate in the questions that you ask, not the information yeah. you give. I always find, even now, for having done this thousands of times, it still gives me a thrill when the right. conversation starts with our sales guys aren't prospecting enough. By the yeah. time we've finished, we're having a conversation about their strategic vision. We're yes. looking at the real cause of where their problems lie. And by the right. time we've finished, we're talking about a program that covers sales, management, organizational excellence, their channel, their enterprise right. sales, their recruitment. Right their strategy, right. their compensation. And right. that is salesmanship. To me, I've failed in my role as salesperson if I don't help them understand and diagnose the root cause of their problems and the ripple effect. There's a lovely platform I use for discovery, pain discovery yep. which called CORE, which came out of a book on resilience. And it stands for Control, Ownership, Reach, and Endurance lovely springboard what do they control what should they control what can't they control what do they want to control who's responsible who owns the problem how far reaching is the ripple effect if they do a good job or a bad job who else is affected how long have they put up with it how much longer are they willing to put up right 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 taking them through that process of discovery is fascinating because they've never looked at the problem and it's such good fun which is why, so in the book, we talk a lot about, you demonstrate how smart you are, not by the answers you give, but by the questions you ask. And that's, again, how you differentiate. 
and the quality of the answers you get back. Yeah. So if I've got 12 questions or 10 questions in my hour with the prospect and I waste one of them and I squander one of them, just get your thesaurus out for woeful, willful misappropriation of your time energy, right? If I squander one of them by saying, so Mr. CEO, tell me how long you've been the CEO of this business. What a crap question. Because not only could I find that on LinkedIn or the website or literature, not only that, B, A, not only that, but B, who cares, right? Because what's that got to do with anything? And all of your competition have asked the same thing. Exactly. So would I rather ask a question, how long have you been the CEO or what markets do you operate in or how many sales guys have you got or what's the revenue of the company? They're such pointless questions. And in fact, they're an insult. They are an insult. They're an insult because you're wasting his time by asking those kind of questions. Now, vendors ask those questions suppliers ask those questions. Strategic partners ask a different question. A strategic partner would ask, take two minutes, Mr. CEO. So already you're telling him this, he's got to think about it and give me a good answer. Take two minutes, Mr. CEO. Tell me what you're seeing in the marketplace right now that's having the most detrimental impact on your competitive advantage over the next couple of years. That is a much better question than how long you've been a CEO, right? So we've got to think very carefully about the usefulness of our questions. And this all has to be planned in advance. So you're coming over to Orlando in a couple of weeks, right? And your pilot, there's going to be a pilot on the plane. Do you want your pilot to have gone on the plane, turned left, because the pilots always go left, right? So walked on the plane, gone left, right? Sat down and just kind of says, okay, guys, where where are we taking this big baby today? Or do you want him to have thought about it? registered a flight plan somewhere, right? Got a plan B, made sure that the tires are working, make sure you've got fuel. Do you want him to go through all of that pre-fright checklist? Or do you just want him to cross his fingers and hope for the best? This is a really important point. I believe it is an act of gross misconduct. And yeah. should be a sackable offense for a salesperson not to have done a written pre-call plan. Exactly. Prospect with three hours of rehearsal, right? And then do a written and verbal post call debrief to capture the lessons, identify the gaps in their understanding, and then feed the next pre call. Right, exactly. Take into account the cost of just getting in front of one CEO. Yeah, yeah. It's an astronomical. Astronomical. And it can't be squandered. Again, we're on exactly the same page. So, what that means is you in your pre call plan or pre flight plan. You've got to write down a bunch of really, 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 really smart questions. And whoever's listening to this podcast, they've probably at some point in their life, unfortunately, been to specialists, right? For whatever reason, right? So they've had a nasty rash. <laughs> Isn't <Yeah>. going away. <laughs> right, so. Biographical. <laughs> it does sound rather, doesn't it? Right? I just missed out the word again. <laughs> so they go to the doctor and he goes, oh, that's that rash again and sends me to the specialist. So think about the specialist that you've been to. And typically, a specialist, they ask you, well, let me ask you, Marcus, do they ask you one question or do they ask you a bunch? They ask you a series of directional questions Correct. and diagnose the core Correct. Of the problem. Do they speak fast or slow? Slow. Considered or just off the cuff? 
very considered and they feed off your previous response. Are they loud or quiet? Quiet. So we have an image of what a specialist, what a real trusted... And do we typically tell that guy more of the truth? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because you want to be fixed. You want help. We need to be that specialist. We need to be that professional. In our place, we say the difference between an amateur and a professional is an amateur practices till he gets it right and a professional practices till he can't get it wrong. And that comes back to what you were saying about rehearse, 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 rehearse. So you need a pre-call plan with a bunch of really, really, really smart questions. And whenever there's a standard rule called Rule 12, standard Rule 12, and it says answer every question with a question. And it's a key, key, key principle because whenever somebody asks you a question, if somebody says to me, if a prospect says to me, hey, Antonio, how many officers has Sandler got, right? I get that question quite a lot. I don't know why, for just some reason, I get the, how big are Sandler? You know, they want to have an image of that. And so if the answer is 275, right? In other words, that's the truth. And the prospect says to me, how many officers has Sandler got? The worst thing I can do is say, oh, great question, 275. It's the single worst thing I can say. Why? Because there is a reason for him asking me that question. There is a motive behind that question. And if I say 275, he's learnt, and I do speech marks in the air when I say learnt, but he now knows the number 275. He's actually not learnt anything. But what if I learnt nothing? And five people could say to me, how many officers have Sandler got? And if I said 275, five times, the first guy might think, holy moly, these guys are going to be expensive. The second guy might think, I'm going to be a very small fish in a very big pond. The third guy might think, oh, I just want some boutique coaching in Miami. These guys aren't the people. The fourth or the fifth guy where I am might think, perfect, because I've got a guy in New York and I've got a guy in Canada and we can fix that. But 99.999% of the time when somebody asks me a question, the worst thing I can do is answer it. Because until I know the motive, I can't help him. I go slightly deeper. I always have the opinion that you need to understand motive, cause, and intent. The motive, why they asked it. Did I do, say, or not do, or say, leading up to them asking that question, the cause sure. to ask it? And what's sure. the intent behind it? Is it to trip me up? Is right. it to use it as leverage to hit me with some kind of objection or smokescreen or stall? Is it to gather information? Why is it important to them? The challenge here, I think, is that most salespeople, because they've been conditioned by parental scripting and scripting from higher authority, if you're asked a question by an authority figure, you have to answer it. Exactly. You absolutely don't. No, and you must never answer any questions. So it's not only do I want you to ask smart questions, I also don't want you to answer dumb ones. So when somebody asks you a question, so not only have you got to be prepared to ask really smart questions, you've got to be resolute in not answering questions until you can figure out those things that you just talked about. Because there is a reason they're asking that question. It could just be idle curiosity, and that's fine too. But you still can't answer it until you know what the, until you know what the motive is. Again, if you do answer, Sandra teaches us three really useful rules, which is that if you're asked exactly the same question yeah. twice in a row, you should answer. However, your response must be as short as humanly possible. Yes. You do it in blue. Why do you ask? You do it in blue. Yes. Why do you ask? Secondly, it must do you no harm. 
And that's where answering the question invariably causes salespeople to trip up. And then you must end on a question mark because if you don't, you cede control to the prospect. And it's the salesperson's job to control the sale. It's the prospect's job to make the decision. I believe certainly your book echoes this and everything that we teach philosophically within Sama is the prospect's job to do the presentation, mm-hmm. handle their own objections mm-hmm. and close themselves. But yeah. if we're talking and we're giving them information, none of that is possible. So exactly. I'd love to explore the piece around not only, in fact, let's do this, objection yeah. handling. That's a myth. I think it's a huge mistake. You should never handle objections. So what is it you teach in order to help your clients neutralize objection? Okay, cool. That's a, that's a really good question. So I want to answer you, but I just have to go backwards one step, half a step, because I need to let everybody know that's listening what is the single most important question of all questions. So, and again, when I'm doing a workshop or a class on questioning, I ask people, what is the most important of all the questions you can ask? And everyone says, why, right? That's not the question. The single most important question, and it comes back to this handling of objections. I promise I'm going to get there, Marcus. The single most important question of all questions. Well, and you've got to do it early on. You've got to do it very early on because it helps establish the the sequel business stature and so on. What we have to get locked in ASAP is your most important question is you've got to get permission to ask a lot of questions. Because if you don't get permission to ask a lot of questions, then you're going to struggle. It's going to be uphill all the way. You're not going to be able to help them handle or deal with or overcome their objections, right? Because if we don't get permission to ask a bunch of questions, then very quickly the whole interview sounds like an interrogation and as soon as it starts to feel like an interrogation everybody closes down and everything turns to rat shit right and then we have to give them a reason that we're asking lots of questions so i'm now just about to answer your question marcus so most people are visual we we teach this in sandler not everybody it's a whole different podcast about how do we figure are they visual are they kinesthetic are they auditory but most people are visual So, and most people need a reason for things that are happening to them. So we've got to think about visual. We've got to think about reasons. And there isn't a CEO on the planet or a manager or anybody on the planet that would be upset with a question that sounds like this. In order for me to see the world through your eyes, Frank, is it going to be okay if I ask you a bunch of questions today? And we'll call that an upfront contract. So it's an upfront contract to ask a bunch of questions and we give them a reason for it. And we even say to them, And it's actually, it's a universal yes. There is nobody that says no to that question. No one's ever said no to that question. It's a bit like, can I tell you my biggest fear? No one ever says no to that question. If you say, I was thinking about this meeting on the way over today, Bill, can I tell you what I was thinking about? No one ever says no to that question. You can take it too far. You can say, I was thinking about you in the shower this morning. Do you want to know what I was thinking? But that's going too far, right? So (laughs) so we've we've got permission to ask, what's that, sorry? That normally turns their stomach. (laughs) Exactly, right. So first of all, we've obtained permission to ask questions. We've given them a reason. So in other words, in order for me to see the business through your eyes, that's the because. To see the business through your eyes, I'm going to have to ask you a bunch of questions. You're going to be okay with that? The answer is always yes. So now we've got permission to ask a lot of questions. Come back to your point, 
somebody has an objection to something, right? So how do we handle it? Well, the answer is we can't. We can't overcome that objection. What we can do is we can help them understand what's at the root of their issue. We're going to help them understand that. And we do that by asking pretty sophisticated questions that are in chapter 10 of the book. <laughs> so that's a vicious plug for the book, right? So chapter 10 of the book. Talk- it's worth reading chapter 10. Was that you going death reverse on me? Yeah, <laughs> it actually was. <laughs> My death yes. reverse. <laughs> what was that? Could you say that again? Oh, chapter, what, which chapter? Oh, chapter 10. <laughs> so there are things called like presumptive questions, right? So it's, it's a strategy that we use. It's a tactic that we use. Sorry. Oh, oh, actually, I heard a great expression the other day. Listen to this. The questioning is a strategy. The question that you employ is a tactic. I wish I'd figured this out before I wrote the book, right? So, so questioning is a strategy. So coming back to this objection and handling. What's the strategy that you use for that? It's questioning. What's the tactic? There are a bunch of questions that are specifically designed for that. And one, for example, is a presumptive question. Now, you, you know what presumptive is, and I know what presumptive is. But when somebody has an issue, what we have to do is flush it out. So we would say, I would say something like, uh, you know, typically, Frank, somebody would say something like that to me for maybe one of three reasons. Is it reason A, is it reason B, or is it reason C, right? And what we're trying to do is, again, get closer to his belief, his understanding, and his truth. So handling objections, you can't. What you can do and what our job is, is to have the client understand, because here's the sad truth. The sad truth is we're not for everybody. And we say it, but we're actually not. And you can't be. So whoever's listening to this podcast, whatever your products and services are, they are not for everybody. You're not for everybody. And if you believe that you are, that's one of the challenges that and you... Not everyone is for you. That's Right. Fact. This is about the equal business stature. Correct. Take that permission slightly further. Yeah. When I'm getting permission to ask questions, I uh-huh. ask permission to ask difficult, uncomfortable Absol- challenges. Yeah. I exactly have the answer to because yeah. I'm going to ask questions that make them think and they know they should have the answer yes. but when you ask them the right question they stop yes. tracks and they think yeah. oh please right no wow when you achieve that that's when you stand out from the crowd and that's how you different so in other words you differentiate yourself not by the answers that you not by the questions you answer by the questions you ask and this is really important as well, which is I think salespeople tend to be a bit spineless. They've got a jelly spine, wishbone rather than a backbone. Yeah. And I think one of the most important shifts in belief that any salesperson can make is that it is your job to enter into constructive conflict. But they're afraid yeah. of getting into conflict because they're afraid of not being liked. They're afraid right. of being thrown out. I don't care whether someone throws me out. I've been thrown out once, and right. frankly, I deserved it. But right, it right. took 15 years because I didn't nurture and just took an instant dislike to the chat. My fault. But I think we have to ask them questions that, make, that shake the ground on which they stand, yeah. challenge their belief systems, and that take them to a place that makes them uncomfortable with their circumstance, but not with you. Can I give you an example of that? Yeah, absolutely. 
imagine you're a CEO and you know what I sell for a living and I know what you sell for a living, right? And the people listening to the podcast, I'm hoping they know what we sell for a living. So first of all, we have to get our tonality right. We have, it has to be nurturing and it has to be non-threatening. But if you over-nurture, you sound patronizing. So be careful. So this takes some practice. This is tonality. If you're communicating, you've got to figure out your tonality. That's just a footballer knowing how to dribble or take free kicks. That's 101 stuff. So you've got to get your tonality right. So about two years ago, I stumbled across a question that does exactly what you were saying, that kind of challenges them to the root of their thinking. I stumbled upon this question. It was a question I asked in a meeting, and it kind of hung in the air like in a big cartoon bubble. And I thought to myself, as I said it, I thought, crikey, where on earth did that come from? That's going to get written down, and I write it down. And I've probably used it 99.9% of every meeting I've had thereafter. And that brings me to a really important point that I'll come back to in about five minutes. And I was talking to a prospect, and I said to him, think about how many sales guys have you got? He said eight. And I said, well, let's imagine a standard distribution bell curve. You've got a couple of A players, maybe you've got three or four B players, and you've got a couple of C players. So give me the name of a C player, right? The guy said, let's say Jack, for the sake of argument. I said, okay, tell me about Jack. And he told me about Jack. And then I said to him, and here's my point, right? This is my point, Marcus. Then I asked him, can I ask you a question? It's a tricky question, and I hope you won't be offended by it. Right. So I get permission because Sandler says you can say anything as long as you get permission. Right. So I said, um, he told me about both of his or two or three of his C players. And I said, question I have for you is this Did you hire them like this or did you make them like this? <laughs> You're already laughing because you know that's a good question. Right. <laughs> right. So think about that because I actually prefaced it by this. And this is the piece you've got to get the nurturing right. I actually said, and we laughed and joked about it at the time, and I've used it countless times since. And I'm not asking anyone that's listening to this podcast to be a real smart ass. I'm not asking for that. But I'm a very jolly individual. I'm a high eye. We laugh a lot when I'm with customers and clients because if they're laughing, they're learning. And so we have very serious but lighthearted. There's a difference between lighthearted and lightweight. So we have very light-hearted conversations, but we don't have lightweight conversations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I would say to him, in terms of this lightweight thing, uh, this light-hearted thing, I would say, are any of these married to your sister? <laughs> the answer is no. And then I would say, do any of them have compromising photos with you and livestock? And they say no. <laughs> and then I say, well, so then have you hired them like this or have you made them like this? And do you know what invariably the answer is? I don't know is invariably the answer. And I said, well, let's play two games. Let's play a couple of games. Let's pretend that you've hired them like this. Why on earth would you do that, right? And then we have that conversation. Oh, let's pretend you've made them like this. How is that serving you? Now, what's happening then when I have that conversation with them, I'm having a conversation with them that no other sales trainer is ever going to have with it because I'm challenging either the way he's populating his business or the way that he's running the business. And that's fine by me. And he will find this uncomfortable and he'll go home and he'll say to his wife, shit, I need some help. And that's good. That's good for me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Last point to come back to that I said I'll be come back to in a few minutes. All of the people listening to this podcast Get the same 20 questions day in, day out, week in, week out. You hear the 
the same 20 questions in different pairs of pants. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is start to write down the questions you get asked, right? Because your job then is to go back to chapter 10 of the book, and there are 18 reverses. That's all described in the book. And whoever's listening to this, your job is to read chapter 10, write down over the next couple of weeks the questions you get. You don't get asked 5,000 different questions. Everybody in every job gets the same 20 questions. And whatever the industry, they're always the same. Yeah, different for things. sure. So everybody's questions are different, but everybody's questions are the same for them, right? Week in, week out, day in, day out, right? And so your job is, because I know when somebody says to me, how much is the training? I get asked that question in 50 times a week or 50 times a month, but in slightly different pairs of pants. And so do you, Marcus. You get asked the how much is it question, right? Part of my professionalism is I have to recognize these are the 20 questions I get asked all the time. And I can't answer why Santa Rule 12 answer every question with a question. I've got to then figure out what's the perfect reverse for each of those questions. So stroke repeat reverse is a tactic you'll learn. And I need to figure out when he asks me this kind of question, then the let's pretend is the perfect reverse. Or if he asks me that question, then it's the start-stop reverse. If he asks me that question, it's my presumptive reverse, right? So it sounds like I'm asking the people that are listening to this to do a lot of work. I am. I am. Absolutely. If you're signing up to a Sandler training program, you're signing yeah. up to a PhD in selling. Yes. That's, that's bloody hard work. It right. It you to put effort in. The problem is, I think most people end up in sales by accident. Their qualification is that they're given a phone, a business card, and a database and told, congratulations, you are one. That's not so. Yes. That shows an enormous lack of imagination and foresight on behalf of yeah. management. And I thought you'd asked me earlier, so I'm going to take advantage of the fact of my mind reading about difficult questions. And I remember meeting the CEO of a very large global PR company. An 18-minute okay. conversation, and bear in mind, I'd set it up that I was allowed to ask difficult, uncomfortable questions. And I said Good. to her, I'm struggling here because I've got a really difficult question, which I feel I have to ask you. But if I don't, I feel I'll be doing both you and I a massive disservice. Are you okay oh, to ask you a question that will literally upset you without you throwing me out? I said, well, yeah, I can take it. And I'd been doing pain discovery for about 15 minutes or so. And I said, so, Diana, tell me something. What's the probability that you'll still be in post in six months? <laughs> nice, nice, nice question. And it was about a minute's silence, and I said nothing. And she said, hmm, about 50-50. Now, I knew there was no way she was going to survive. And two weeks later, she was fine. But she had no idea she yeah. was in that position. Now, in the end, I did help her. And I coached her, and she got a £300,000 pay rise. <laughs> nice. Pay <So> rise. <laughs> taking it on the chin, she got £300,000 pay rise and a promotion in a new job, two levels above where she was, because I coached nice. her to get that job. Nice. The really interesting thing is you can ask some incredibly uncomfortable, not yeah difficult yeah. personal yeah. questions and this is where i think a lot of salespeople go wrong because they stay in the intellectual and they never yeah. personal 
So yeah. one of the things I love about working with you is the fact that you don't mind going deep into the emotion. So what is it that stops salespeople from asking those kind of questions? Well, you have to go into the emotional, and we do a lot about transactional analysis. And those that don't know what transactional analysis is that are listening to this podcast, ring Marcus and go and crash a class of his, and he'll teach you all about it. But whilst ever we have an adult-to-an-adult conversation, an intellectual-to-an-intellectual conversation, the only way we can differentiate ourselves is with price because there's no emotion. It's only logic. We want the other person to become emotional. We want them to be emotional. We want them to be in their child state. The way that we drive people into their child state is we have to go up into our nurturing parent state. And we do this very much with questions as well in our language and the tonality. Do you remember I was talking about that earlier? And your tonality was lovely but just then when you were talking about Fiona. So I ask the similar question that you ask, and I ask it all the time. And I ask it like this. But it's very similar to you, but it's very nurturing. It's parental, right? And what it does is it makes them emotional. And it allows us then to get from the surface pain to the business pain to the personal pain, right? To these three levels of pain. But I'll ask a question like this. The question that you just asked. This is how I ask it. And you've got to make all of these questions, and there's thousands in the book. You've got to make them fit your skin. Here's how I ask it. I would have asked Fiona the question like this because it fits my skin, right? But it's the same question you ask. I've got to get my tonality just the same as you do, my slightly confused but nurturing, right, to help me out, like tonality. I've got to be slightly behind the pendulum, and I've got a dummy curve here. All of this stuff that Marcus is going to teach you, you can hear our words, you can hear our voices. I would say this, Fiona, i got a question for you, and it's, it's difficult to ask, and it's probably going to be difficult to hear. I'm not sure how to go about asking it. What will she say 100% of the time? Look, I can take it. Go ahead. Just go ahead. And what we're talking about there, what that thing that we just did, that's called permission-based selling. And Sandler is filled with it. I'm coming back. I will come back to your answer in a second, Marcus. So permission-based selling is, hey, Mr. Prospect, would it make sense if we spend five minutes talking about the kind of investment it might take to get this thing fixed for you? When I ask that question, who's in charge? Who feels like they're in charge? They do. Right. So when I say, would it make sense if we spend five minutes talking about the kind of investment it might take to get this fixed for you? I am 100% in charge, and yet they feel like they're in charge. And this is this universal, yes, permission-based selling. That's what Sandler is all about. It's all about mutual misunderstanding, mutual agreement, right? No mutual mystification and all that kind of stuff. So I need to get down to this emotional level, right? Because that's where the truth lies, brings us in a big circle to where we started this whole conversation. So I've got to ask questions that engage the child state, get us away from this surface-level pain issue, get beyond the business level. If you look at our pain funnel questions, it's really interesting because they start off with, can you give me an example of that? Can you be a little bit more specific? How long has this been going on, right? How much is this costing you? And as we go down this funnel, we get to some really interesting, genius questions. One of my favorite is, have you given up trying? Because who gives up trying shit? Kids do. Right, And what we've done is we've started to drive them down to a, their child ego state. We do that, and a lot's talked about that in the book, What I'll say to a prospect, let's imagine you had a magic wand, and you could make all of these four issues disappear, but one of them disappear overnight, which one would it be? They're going to say number two. I'm going to go, that's interesting. Why number two? And they're going to say number two, number two, number two. And then I'm going to go, well, let's pretend. Let's pretend 
that that was never an issue. And all of this magic wand, let's pretend, Carlos, who's our, my business partner, has a great let's pretend shtick. He goes, let's pretend you had a magic gun with a magic bullet. You could magically fire at one of your problems and it magically disappears. What he's doing is he's getting down to this personal level because who runs around with magic guns and magic bullets? Kids do. So if we're going to get to the personal level of the pain, we have to engage their child state. This is all transactional analysis. I mean, this is 70 years ago thinking, and it's, as, it's just how humans are wired. It's as true today as it was then. This is the point. I mean, at the risk of sounding like a zealot, David Sander managed to do 40, 50 years ago was get to where the science is now catching up. Yes, it's crazy, isn't it? The whole system is predicated and built upon the foundation of TA. It's built upon understanding how human beings are hardwired. Yeah. I was doing a training session today, and I right. made a point. You are not good enough to be able to override 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Even trying. No. On and the fly. <laughs> what Chandler did was he intrinsically understood that. And yeah. this is really important as well. Salespeople forget that people buy for their reasons, for their intrinsic yeah. motivation. They need to feel like they are empowered to solve yep. their own problem. And yep. this is why the traditional push system doesn't work. Because the traditional push system is me telling you the reasons I believe you should buy from me. Whereas what Sander teaches is discover the reasons yeah. why they want to change, why they're willing to change, and help them realize that it's within their grasp to do something yeah. about it. It's called pendulum theory. We can't get between them and the sale. It's and genius. It's genius. Increasingly, the older and longer in the tooth that I get, the less effort I put into my selling. I have a fundamental belief that the prospect should do all the work, yep. they should do the presentation, they should yep. have their own objections, they should close themselves, and then they should pretty much write the proposal themselves. Correct. If Correct. You're writing a proposal as a part of the selling process, you've got it wrong. A proposal yeah. is never more than a confirmation of the order and a statement yeah. of work. And yeah. the prospect should write it. You might be the scribe, but my favorite response, I think I heard it was Jeffrey Gitterman. He oh, said, yeah. Well, you've taken notes. Why don't we sign notes? Now, the reality is. <laughs> what a great line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would work if it wasn't for the fact that. I cannot remember a time where a prospect wrote more than my name and the date on the top of their page. So I can't use that line, but it's fantastic. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. So one of the things that's really interesting is where we tell them to write it down. I, what I do like to do is get them to build their shopping list and then summarize it back. So I'm really interested in how you use pain reviews in the discovery process. Perfect. You need to get the prospect to feel understood. Perfect. So we have a technique called SVIC, which is, to understand it, deep level, you have to go to Marcus's class, but SVIC means, stands for, well, it's an acronym and it stands for summarize. So, and I often do this, and I don't wait till the end of the pain step, by the way. I do a couple of these. I'll say, can we just, can we just tap the brakes for a second, Fiona? Can we just tap the brakes for a second, Fiona? I just want to make sure that we're both on the same page. Can I just spend a minute tell you what I've heard? That's a universal yes, right? And the shoot's permission-based, so she'll say yeah. And I go, so what I think I've heard is 
da 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 right? So that's the summarized piece. So is that about right? And Einstein said, if you can't describe it like a four-year-old, you don't understand it, right? So really simplify it. Don't spend 20 minutes describing the last 20 minutes. Just do 30 seconds describing the last 20 minutes. Make sure you get the key points, which means, by the way, coming back to the point that you made earlier, you have to be the, taking notes like crazy because it's like the specialist now. It slows you down. It makes you more intellectual, Like you think about a question. And you should have your questions, by the way, on your notebook. That's a whole different story. Then she will validate it. She will say, yeah, yeah, that's about right, but don't forget Chattanooga. And I go, oh, yes, of course, Chattanooga. Right? So she will then validate it. So that's my SMIV. Now I'm going to figure out, and you can use metaphor just like we do in pricing. I've now got to figure out how important this thing is that we're talking about. And I've got to say, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is this? Now, you don't have to do it on 1 to 10. There's lots of ways you could do it. You could do it poker hands. You could do it however you want to do it. And you know, and I know, Marcus, that if she says on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is it? If she says 2, it's time to ask for a referral and leave, right? So we'll figure out how important it is. But if we can live with a number, whatever number she says, you go ask why. So you understand what's going on. So ask why and then go, okay, but there must be a lot of stuff that's important on your desk. That's why you get the big books and the big car. So how committed are you to, to fixing this? doesn't have to be with us. It could be with somebody. But how committed are you to getting this fixed? Again, 1 to 10, ABC, or however you want to characterize it. And again, if she says 3, go home. If she says 9, why? And that helps validate, as you were saying earlier, that, that helps keep that pain conversation at the forefront. Sandler said, he made a really two nice comments about this kind of thing. He said that selling is a Broadway play plumbed by psychiatrists. Going back to that wiring that you were talking about for three million years of wiring. But I try and get them to repeat the pain many, 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 many times. I want their ears to hear their mouth saying it. And the reason is I have this kind of, this little piece of like, whoever's listening to this, write this down because this is the golden nugget, I think, of most things. So Number one, they never believe what you tell them. So number one, they never believe what you tell them, which means feature function benefits and all that kind of stuff doesn't work because they never believe what you tell them. Number two is they rarely believe what you show them. So don't show them anything. All this literature and all of this brochures and websites and stuff, forget it. They're not interested. If they ask you for that, what they're really saying is not interested. Thanks very much. And ask them if that's what they mean by that. So number one, they never believe what you tell them. Two, they rarely believe what you show them. So don't tell them anything. Don't show them anything. Number three, they'll often believe what somebody else tells them. That means you better get really good at telling third-party stories, right? So third-party and ask questions in third-party as well. But number four is they always believe what they tell themselves. So they never believe what you tell them. They rarely believe what you show them. They'll sometimes believe what somebody else tells them, but they'll always believe what they tell themselves. So the more I can have that, and what it is, is if you want to look it up, the psychology behind all of that is it's confirmation bias. So if you just Google confirmation bias and read as much as you can about confirmation bias, and it helps you control everything. When I get to a pain point, I just like just like you said earlier, I go temporarily deaf sometimes and say, well, what, what, what was that? Right? Because I want them to repeat it. I want their mouth to hear, or their ears to hear their voice saying, this is terrible and I have to fix it. And I want to hear them say it again and again and again and again and again. And it keeps driving them down to this emotional level. Sandler teaches the rule that the prospect never sees the reverse 
when they're emotionally involved. One of the pushbacks that you get from clients a lot is, well, I can't ask all these questions. You damn well can. Yeah, you've got permission, remember. If you've got permission and you're nurturing and your intent is to help them understand the root cause of their problem and help them to fix it forever, then they're emotionally involved. They never see the question. They never hear and they never resist it. No, and it's conversational, remember. And also, Sandler also said, which I like, you know, just as much, maybe more, is the best presentation you ever give, they never see. Absolutely. That's that's, the presentation with Let's Pretend. And one of my favorite questions is, so, Antonio, let's pretend it's, I don't know, three years from now. And we've been working together, and we're at our third annual review. And... We're discussing how we're moving forward so that we're taking this into other divisions of the business. We're working with you in terms of planning your exit strategy. What needs to have changed materially in the results that you're getting and in the culture that you've developed for you to say, thank God, the best decision I ever made was bringing you in? Gorgeous question. It transformed the learning to do that. Because now, what's happening? They're projecting three years. We work together. Their business is singing. They're talking about a fourth renewal. They're talking about taking me into the rest of their business. And then you bring them back to the present. The rule that we teach in Sandler is if you want someone to make a decision today, take them into the future and then bring them back to now. And that transformed my sales success. That one question has probably added a few million to this account. It's just a joy. I'm really curious because I'm conscious we're coming up to the hour. Looking back over your career, what is it that you'd be telling your 25, 30-year-old self about understanding people? That's a great question. I had that same question about four, my Thursday, that's Friday, four or five days ago. I'm doing, I'm on this advanced meditation course right? So I'm going every week for this meditation stuff and I'm absolutely loving it. But one of the exercises we did was go back and talk to your six-year-old self, go back and talk to your 25-year-old self, go back and talk to you. And we did a few stages, right? What I actually told, so just last week, what I actually told my 25-year-old self was, don't worry so much about stuff will work out. Don't worry about the future because that's interest paid on stuff may never happen. Today, you're okay and you're safe and you're great and you have as much value as anybody else. And I would tell my 25-year-old self to have more self-belief, self-confidence. And it's another Sandler thing. It's IR. They need to come to your class to learn all about that. It's staggering how all of the stuff that we teach is Everything is behavior, attitude, and technique, but to make the behaviors or the, or the techniques, it's all about the attitude. So I would work on my 25-year-old attitude, and asking questions is all about attitude as well. This is interesting. For me, it would be to go back and advise myself to ask myself better questions because I think too often you get stuck in a rut. I had a mental when I was about 21, 22, right, the rut as a coffin with both ends kicked out. often it's because you just don't ask yourself those tough demanding challenging questions you don't move forward and 
the most important upfront contract, and I think it was either you or Carlos said it, is the one that you are uh, that you have with yourself before you leave the house. What do I want to achieve from today? How can I improve? What can I do today to make my life or someone else's life simpler or easier? Yeah. What can I say no to? And a couple of other great questions that have been really apocryphal for me have been questions like, who pays the negative price for my positive payoff? But that forced me to stop working evenings and weekends because I realized I wasn't present and I was always worn out because I missed so much of my kids' childhood because I was so self-obsessed and selfish. And I love what I do. That's obvious. That that shines through. It is an addiction. You're right. Okay. Well, look, Antonio, I don't want to overstay my welcome. And I definitely want to have another conversation with you. In fact, two conversations, one around questioning and coaching and another one in terms of channel management. Nice. Which Uh, is a terrific book, by the way. Well done, you. A terrific book. Yeah. I think I bought a couple of cases, didn't I? Because I've been giving them around like confetti. You must have run out by now. (laughs) (laughs) I probably need to buy some more. Absolutely. (laughs) What I'd like to do is have you back a couple of times because I think this is it's central. It's massive, isn't it? But how can people get hold of you? If any of your people listening to our voices aren't on LinkedIn, they ought to be shot. So they can certainly find me on LinkedIn, <laughs> just uh, Absolute or just Sandler Training at Miami. They can go on our website, which is absolute.sandler.com. They can find us uh, Facebook. They can find us all over that. We are very high profile, but just do Sandler Training Miami and you'll find me and text me and call me and email me. And I promise within, within 72 hours, me likely me or somebody will have got back to you through a range of conversation. We love talking to people. And where can they get hold of the book? Amazon.com is always a good place. It's asking, or Kindle, some people like that. So asking questions the Sandler way. And if anybody reads it and likes it and has enjoyed this podcast today, then um, give us a five-star review on Amazon. That really helps. <laughs> if anyone would like a free chapter from the book, email It's chapter 10. It's chapter 10. It's, it's so the one we talked about. Have- Email me at mkalki at sandler.com or ask for it via a direct message on LinkedIn and I'll send you a copy of the chapter. It's one of my top three favorite books of all time simply because of its practical application and it's lighthearted but not lightweight and fantastic, instantly applicable content. If you haven't got it, get it. Buy it for your entire sales team. <laughs> God love you, sir. You're out of your mind if you're letting your salespeople go out and present. I believe that the traditional sales presentation is like a proud new father showing photos of this ugly child. <laughs> that people will politely sit there and suffer I'm it. Not. And yeah. But they don't want to see photos of your kid because they don't give a damn. What they need is for you to diagnose and understand them, understand their problem, because human beings want to be heard, they want to feel felt, and they want to be understood. And that's what this book gives you. Antonio, thank you so much. As ever, it's a joy. Can't wait to see you in Orlando in a couple of weeks. See you in Orlando. And I expect we'll spend quite a bit of time around the pool with Lord Martini. So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please comment, like, and share. It helps if you engage with the content. And if you've got any questions about asking questions, please get back to me or to Antonio. We'd love to help. Marcus Kalkin, signing off. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Marcus. Loved it. Okay. Cheers. Thank you, Matt. Bye.